Mike Vonnen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And in this video, I want to talk about the themes in the Middle-earth writings of Tolkien that very much mirror his own Christian worldview. And you may remember from not too long ago, somebody wrote an article about how Lord of the Rings is not a Christian work. This is not a response to that article. Frankly, I found that article so pathetic as to not be worth responding to. This is an idea that I've had in my brain for quite some time, but I wanted to cover various other topics kind of foundationally first, because this one is going to have to be very high-level and very concise summary type stuff, because there are actually a lot of things in The Silmarillion, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings that really play on a lot of the Christian theology that Tolkien held to as a Catholic. So I'm going to start with The Silmarillion and work my way forward in time and cover the various different things that reflect Tolkien's Catholicism, and at the end we'll see just how Christian or not his stories are. So, of course, we start the story of the Silmarillion with a version of the creation story which is very reminiscent of the biblical creation story. There is a single monotheistic god who creates angelic beings who then sing the universe into existence effectively, but it's really the act of God, or Eru Iluvatar in this instance, who by fiat, as in saying it, that he brings the world into existence. He says, Ea, let it be, and there it is. Now, of course, the music of the Ainur is something that's not really present in the biblical creation story. Nevertheless, there are elements in the Bible that refer to, like, you know, the sons of God, meaning angels, basically, coming before God at different points, as if in some kind of council or something like that. And so there is some mirror image even there. But the main point is we start with this very, very monotheistic, direct creation story, which is very similar in that respect to the biblical creation story. And so from the Silmarillion, page one, we're already off to a start of this looks very similar, at least to a monotheistic Abrahamic religion, even if not specifically Christianity. Now, another thing that comes up, very early in the story, and I believe this is still in the Ainulindale, there's a discussion of men receiving the gift of being able to shape their own destinies in contrast to other beings within Arda for whom the music is basically as fate. And it's not exactly clear to what extent Tolkien meant that phrase, like how much of the rest of the lives of other peoples are controlled by the music versus how much they have free will. It seems pretty clear that he didn't deny that elves and dwarves had free will. It, so it's more like men just have a greater capacity to affect their own outcomes. But the degree of that is not exactly clear. But it opens up this idea of the tension between fate on the one hand, which is kind of the direction that history is going based on God's plan, and the free will of the, you know, the rational beings, the humane species, we might say, humans, dwarves, elves, who inhabit the world. And, you know, I've been covering a lot of different things in recent videos about the idea of fate and free will in particular. I've got 
four videos now on that topic, and I'll link to those in the description below if you're interested. I've done fate and free will kind of as a general thing in Tolkien's works. I've done it in specific to the Turin Turumbar story and the Lord of the Rings, and I did one comparing Tolkien's treatment of the topic with the Adjustment Bureau movie. So lots of different interesting stuff there. But that tension of fate against free will is a very Christian thing. There's a lot of ink spilled by Christian theologians over the years discussing various aspects of this question and how to resolve the two. So that's definitely something that Tolkien would have probably been familiar with and something that he puts into his stories probably deliberately because of that. Moving forward in time, one of the things that we never really see much of is the idea of worshipping Eru Iluvatar. We mostly see the elves connected with the Valar, and especially Varda. But when we get to the island of Numenor, this is actually something that comes up very specifically in regard to Numenor. The Numenorians worship Eru Iluvatar directly, and they do it in an annual feast day, sort of, so to speak, uh, when they climb to the top of the Meneltarma in the middle of Numenor and the king kind of leads more or less a worship session. This is really the only direct evidence we get of any, you know, worship of Eru specifically, but it certainly does kind of match up with the idea of a priest king, read Christ, and the idea that we have a worship session led by that kind of a person directly for, you know, the the creator God. So that is, you know, one of the things that is kind of explicitly left out, as Tolkien notes in one of his letters, is the idea of a direct religion in The Lord of the Rings. He didn't really want that in The Lord of the Rings, because it's a pre-Christian society anyway, but there are hints of it in things like that. And actually, you know, speaking of you know, a, a priest king, that reminds me of a point that I kind of skipped over. One of the endpoints of the Silmarillion is Arendil taking his Silmaril to Amon and, you know, trying to get the Valar to intervene in the, you know, the, the plight of the elves and men who are suffering under the domination of Morgoth. Arendil is a very interesting case because he ends up being called the Morning Star, which is in and of itself kind of a parallel to Christ because there's a lot of Christian you know, imagery that associates Christ with the Morning Star. But there's also the idea of Arendil as part divine and part human because he has human ancestors and elven ancestors, but he also has a Maya as an ancestor, and Amaya is an angel in this case, and of course this is not a direct parallel to the Christian theology of the Incarnation, because Christ is born, you know, from the action of, you know, God himself, and, you know, a human woman, but it's still, you know, reminiscent of that idea of there is a divine strain, and there is a human strain, and that leads to, that brings about the birth of the Savior of Humanity, which in a lot of ways Arendil is. Absent Arendil's intervention, humanity and Elvendom both fall and, you know, just stay in eternal darkness, basically. So there's a really strong Christ parallel going on there. So that's kind of our first age and second age stuff kind of wrapped up there. 
In The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, of course, we have a lot of different references which are not very explicit, but certainly hint at the idea of a divine providence. I've mentioned in my videos on the idea of providence and the idea of fate and free will that Gandalf very pointedly tells Bilbo, you know, this wasn't just luck for your sole benefit. There's more going on here. And then he even more explicitly tells Frodo, Bilbo found the ring and that was not the will of the ringmaker at work. There's another power at work that wanted him to find the ring. So he was meant to have it and therefore you were meant to have it. He's being fairly explicit about the idea of some kind of providential intervention into history there. But, you know, there's many other examples we could cite from The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. But providence and its actions within the story are certainly not the only thing that really play a role that remind us of Christianity. We even have some things that, even though specific religious practices are not there, we do have something that seems like a religious observance, when Faramir has his, you might say, I, I believe Tolkien actually even called it this, grace before meat, when at Hineth Anun, he has this moment where he they stand and face to the west, and it's in memory of Numenor that was, but also of Valinor, which will ever be. And there is some element, almost, of a spiritual worship-type thing there, because he's recognizing higher powers that have existed forever and will continue to exist. We also get a really interesting reference by Gandalf in another context when he's talking to Denethor at one point, and he's talking about how Denethor is a steward of Gondor, and he's really only thinking of Gondor, and he says, you know, my care is broader than that. You know, I have to care for all the living things in Middle-earth, for I also am a steward, did you not know? Now, this idea of him being a steward is not in and of itself a Christian idea, but it's very common within Christian worldviews to see humanity in general as stewards of the world. It's like we were given the world by God, and we have the duty to care for and you know respect it to the you know it's not worthy of the same kind of respect as other humans necessarily because inanimate matter does not have a soul. But nevertheless, nature is something that is meant to be preserved and taken care of. It was not given to us to just make dirty and destroy. So there is a stewardship aspect of humanity which is in a lot of Christian thought. So that's another element that's not very explicit, but it's still a hint that something is in that direction. Another point, which is one that other people have raised and which... You can argue about the validity of this, but it, it certainly it certainly has a ring to it, and, and I don't think you can totally deny it, is the idea of the Frodo, Gandalf, and Aragorn being kind of like the three-part role of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And I didn't do that in order. Frodo would be the priest, Gandalf is the prophet, and Aragorn is the king. So the idea is Frodo is the priest because he bears the sins of the world in the form of the ring and, you know, takes that to Mount Doom and gets rid of it for everybody. This, I think, is kind of the weakest connection because the ring does not represent sin. Gandalf is a little bit better because of the 
idea of him being a prophet is he's like a direct spokesman for the divine. And he is sent specifically by the Valar to aid humans and elves and dwarves in their fight against Sauron. And so in that sense, he very much is in a prophetic role. But that's also kind of a little weak and attenuated. Where I think we get a better argument for this is the idea of Aragorn as king. Aragorn as king very much has a strong element of, you know, the the coming of Christ as king. And, you know, depending on your theology, there's various different views on this within Christianity. And Catholicism is, as I understand it, a little bit hands-off on how you interpret this. There's no, I don't think there's like an official dogma on this particular point. But Catholics in general, I don't think, believe that Christ is coming again to be a political ruler, let's say, although some Christians and, of course, Jews, you know, devout Jews, would think that Christ, that Christ is going to come back and be a ruler on earth ruling a physical kingdom of Israel or something like that. So depending on your theology, your mileage here may vary, but there is certainly in the Bible at least the appearance of, you know, what looks like Christ coming back and becoming a king in a physical world ruling over all the nations of the earth and Aragorn's return as king very much mirrors this idea because Christ came once and then there's a long period of his absence and he's going to come again and that's kind of like you know they're not being a king in Gondor for a very very long time and then Aragorn comes and restores the kingship brings things to a state of renewal, and in fact he calls himself Invinyatar, the renewer. And that's, you know, renewal is very much an idea that kind of goes with Christ as as king and all of these different ideas. And Aragorn isn't the only real instance of this. This kind of comes up in other ways too, and I've done a video on the broader themes of like a decline and fall and then a renewal and I'll link to that video in the description as well, because it really, you can see it in the first, second, and third ages, how things get bad, and then they really come to a crisis point, and then divine intervention saves everything, basically. And that's very much kind of a biblical apocalyptic worldview, right? That's kind of how things work in the Bible, Things get bad, you know, the people of Israel rebel against God, things get worse for them, then they finally get absolutely defeated by whatever enemy. They repent, and then God brings them back into favor. It's a very, very strong theme in the Bible, and so that's even a broader thing than just Aragorn, but he's a very particularly good example of it because he specifically is renewing things as a king, and that matches up with the idea of Christ as king very neatly. Now, some other broader themes that we might consider without necessarily looking at specific examples in the stories are, as I mentioned earlier, we've got the providence and fate and free will thing, and you can look at all my videos on that, uh, and as well as the video that I did on providence and comparing that to the movie Passengers. But there's another really good example of movie a movie that contrasts with Tolkien in some in, or compares with Tolkien in some interesting ways and that's Megamind. Both of them explore the nature of evil in some really interesting ways. And it's not your standard exploration of the topic of evil because what we find out 
from Tolkien's view is that evil is just repetitive, uncreative, dull, you know, it's like the the elves are the quintessential creators, you know, in, in the world that are not, you know, divine in any sense. The Valar are also very much creators because they literally aided in the creation of the world and they helped shape the world once it was in existence, but the elves, you know, are not a part of any of that process. Nevertheless, they are given supreme creative abilities. Morgoth, as Melkor, theoretically would have had really good creativity as well, but he spoiled it and because of his own pride and everything went a totally different direction and became powerless to really do anything like that. And a lot of that kind of comes up in Megamind. In Megamind, it's not so much about the creativity as it is just about the boredom of it. Evil is ultimately boring. It has nothing to do. And, you know, there's elements also of the nihilism of it that comes up in both. Tolkien talks about the nihilism of Morgoth. He just wants to just destroy everything because none of it's really his. He just wants to get rid of it all. Whereas in Megamind, it's kind of nihilistic because it's just like, I do... I have the power to do bad things, I do bad things, I break things, and it's all kind of pointless. Megamind becomes so bored with not having even a challenge anymore that he has to create his own superhero to fight against him. And, you know, so, I mean, there's it's a very interesting kind of description of what evil is like in a way that is unlike most treatments of the topic, because most treatments of the topic aren't thinking in those kinds of terms. They're thinking in, you know, what leads people to be evil or what is the nature of evil and, you know, the nature of evil in a Catholic view from, I think it's Aquinas, I think, I think it's Aquinas, uh, is the idea that evil is kind of just the negation of the good. Evil doesn't exist on its own. It's just like you take a good thing and then you ruin it, make it bad. And that's very much a Tolkienian idea too. But this specific idea of evil being banal and just you know, repetitive, boring, not interesting, not creative, you know, that's kind of uniquely Tolkienian, and it's kind of mirrored in that Megamind approach of, you know, what am, what car am I going to blow up on Tuesday? What's the point? It's boring. I've done it a million times. You know, it's just, it's, it's a really interesting comparison in the way that they look at what evil is really like if you let it run its course. Another really interesting theme is the conflict between morality on the one hand and the law on the other hand. And I've done several videos on this topic as well, where you've got, you know, some moral consideration, but you've also got a legal consideration, and they seem to conflict, and you have to reconcile them. You know, you have Faramir deciding what to do with Frodo and Sam. It's like, technically, he should be taking them back to Gondor for judgment by Denethor, when the company arrives in Lothlorien and the, you know, Haldir and the elves with him have to decide, well, do we let these guys in? Do we let the dwarf in? Do we let the dwarf in with or without a blindfold? You know, there's all these different considerations. And then in Rohan, you had the same thing. Eomer meets Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. And he's like, I really shouldn't let you go free. It's against the law. But, you know, I, I, I trust you. And then Hama does the same thing at the door. And he's like, Technically, Gandalf, I should be taking your staff right now, but I think you're a good guy and you mean well, so I'll use my judgment. So there's this conflict all the time, and sometimes the conflict results in like a really neat resolution where Aragorn 
tells Baragon, look, you killed somebody in, you know, Rothdenan, and that means you can't be in the guard of the Citadel anymore. Therefore, I'm going to make you the captain of the guard of Faramir, which, you know, it's like he punishes him in a sense, but it's also a reward at the same time, and it's just an incredible synthesis of justice and mercy. And that justice and mercy, law versus morality, those kinds of conflicts slash intermeldings are a very, very strong thing within a lot of Christian thinking because a good chunk of the Bible is about, you know, you don't just follow the law. Sometimes you have to follow, you know, the moral thing to do. You know, as the apostles tell the Pharisees at one point, should we follow what you say or should we follow God? You tell us. So, you know, that's a very strong element there, but also that justice and mercy element is also there too because God is just, but God is also merciful. So there's, you know, those kinds of tensions are very prevalent in Christian thinking. Now, I want to cap this off with one specific example, which is contained only in the history of Middle-earth, and that is the Athrabeth of Andreth and Finrod. And this is one that I've done a whole video on unto itself, which I'll, again, link to in the description below. There's going to be a lot of links in the description on this one. But this is one where there is a huge philosophical discussion between Finrod, the elven king, and Andreth, a human wise woman, about why elves and men have different fates, why elves are immortal and why men are mortal. You know, were men once immortal and did they lose that? And if so, how? Whose doing was that? And they get into all this different stuff. And quite apart from the implications of the idea of the fall of man and the loss of immortality, which is a very you know, biblical idea going back to the creation and fall stories, they eventually get into this really deep, you know, conversation about, you know, how, you know, humanity might come to be the 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 species that helps bring about the renewal or healing of Arda. And Finrod even speculates that in some way Eru might come into his own creation which would seem impossible. And it's like you read that, and when you read it, if you know anything about Christian theology at all, you realize immediately that what he's speculating about is the incarnation of Christ. <laughs> it's like it just beats you over the head. Um, which is interesting, because Tolkien rarely does anything like beat you over the head with anything in his stories. That's more of a C.S. Lewis-style type of thing. But it's fascinating, because Tolkien puts this very directly into this conversation and it's it's kind of like Tolkien at his max level philosoph philosophizing I guess within his own story and it's really interesting to read and it's you know it's I'm not saying it's the most convincing philosophical argument for why you would expect that sort of thing to happen but certainly it's an interesting thing to read in in terms of you know, the elvish perspective on what humanity is here to do and how that relates to the incarnation of Christ and all these different things. So, I mean, there's... That whole element is so explicitly Christian. Well, I shouldn't say explicitly, but it's so obviously Christian that you really can't escape it at that point. It's it's so clearly talking about the incarnation 
And it never makes it into the published Silmarillion, of course, and it's not in The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, but it's nevertheless something that he wrote that we have in published form. And it shows certainly the direction that he was coming from and headed to in his writings. And so when he writes in one of his letters to a, I believe it was a Catholic priest, that, you know, he's, the the writing of the Lord of the Rings was, you know, unconsciously at first, but consciously in the revision, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, he means that. I mean, he's writing it from the perspective of someone who is very much a Catholic and therefore is writing the world in a way that is consistent with, founded on the same foundations as, i.e. fundamentally, the same religion that he adheres to. So that's what Tolkien really means when he says that, is all of the foundations of the world that he's created are, or at least he thinks they are, the same foundations on which the Christian worldview is built. And so... That's really kind of where this video ends up, is this idea that at the end of the day, even though there's not a whole lot of explicit Christianity in Lord of the Rings, the Silmarillion, any of this stuff, if you look at it from the ground up, the ground is certainly looking at the same, about the same kind of stuff. The grounds of it, it's the same exact kinds of grounds that you find in Christian theology. Now again, different theologies have different views on some of these topics, but from a Catholic point of view, at least, this is Tolkien's perspective. So that's my brief, you know, 60,000 foot overview of what, you know, all of this looks like from a Christian perspective and how we can see Tolkien's Christianity coming through in his stories. If you liked the video and found it instructive, please do give it a thumbs up and share it around. If you, I missed anything really important that you think I should have put in here, leave that in the comments below. Subscribe and hit that bell icon for all my future content so you don't miss anything. I'm also on Rumble, Odyssey, and have podcast versions of these. You can find me at Twitter at JRRTLore for occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions, and you can support me over at Patreon. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namadier.